Well, we can definitely thank God for the fact that we can take every burden to the cross and lay it down. Getting a little bit of ring there. And um, so we can be thankful for that. And, you know, John foretold that we would be able to take our burdens to the cross in John. John 1, 30, excuse me, 29, we see in the text, Behold, John the Baptist saying about Christ, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He did that at the cross. And so I know that as I am, you are still captured and fascinated by the cross. I just uh, about two weeks ago was flipping through old stuff and throwing things away. I don't know if you ever have to do things like that. I I tend to keep things for a long time that I think I'm going to use again, and then I never use them, so I have to throw them away eventually. Um, Some people might call that a little bit of a pack rat syndrome, but I don't keep it forever like some people do. I do throw things away. I was going through some old books, uh, notebooks of mine. I was flipping through notes I'd taken, different places, different things. I found this little CD um, by John Piper that I got as a, a, a Christmas gift from his ministry uh, called The Innkeeper. And I, I'm not sure how many of you um, uh, know who John Piper is even, but uh, you know he's impacted my life. And he writes a poem every year at Christmas. And he does a different one, you know, different biblical story. And what he does is he takes the biblical story and then he inserts a, a, a character into the story. And so he, he's telling the truth, he's telling the story, but he does it through the eyes of a character that is not in the Bible. And it's very, very artistic. It's very well done. He's a great uh, writer and poet. But this year he sent out the innkeeper. And uh, uh, the story, uh, the story kind of, the song reminded me of the story. The story, if you ever get it, it's about eight minutes long, but I'm going to condense it. Basically, Jesus comes from Jerusalem down the the stony path to Bethlehem, uh, descending from the hill of of Jerusalem. And uh, you all know that Bethlehem was not far from Jerusalem. Many people came to Bethlehem with their sacrifices and they stayed the night there before they continued on to the temple to give their offering to the Lord. And so the Lord was doing a backwards travel. He was coming down in the poem from Jerusalem down into Bethlehem and he, you know, passes by a little girl in the street, you know, and and it's the perfect picture of what I envision the Lord. Strong, uh, resilient, um, very, very, uh, in a sense, he he has a, a nature I, in my mind's eye when I read stories where people are attracted to him, but they're yet they're in fear of him a lot of times, or they they're not quite sure they want to get too close to him. And but little children love him. You know, every time you see him in a story with little children, they all want to like I see Jesus like a human, uh, you know, trapeze or something. They want to climb on him, be with him, sit in his lap. I just kind of see that. I don't know. It may not be true. Children may have hated him or something, but I doubt it. Because uh, one thing we know is that, uh, you know, little children love to be loved. And I know the Lord loved them. And so he's, anyway, in this poem, he's going down the street there. And there's just children everywhere. And there's this one little girl. She's down playing in the street. And he stoops down. And he draws in the sand. 
He draws a camel. And he says, what is this? And the little girl replies, well, it's a camel. And we know because it has a hump on its back. And uh, so Jesus said, you have good eyes, my child. And then he says, who made the camel? And she said, without ever hesitating, God makes the camel. God made this, this camel. And he says, oh, but if the people in Jerusalem had eyes like you to see that God himself made the camel. You know, the little girl was confessing God is the creator. Jesus, play on words, is the creator creating the little dirt, dust camel there for her. And so he moves on. That's not the purpose of why he's in Bethlehem. He goes to the inn where he was born in the stable. And he knocks on the door and no one comes. He knocks again and the man beckons. A man beckons for him to come so he goes around and there is a man there without an arm. And he's there drawing in the sand with a stick and he has a little old dog laying next to him at his feet. And he says, come on back, son. He said, I haven't had anybody to tend the front door for years. And so Jesus sits down and Jesus asks him um, what his name is. And anyway, in the poem, his name is Jacob. And, uh, and J Jacob tells the story of when the Savior was born in his stable. He tells about, Jesus asks in the poem, have you always been this way? Have you always been alone? And he said, oh, no, there was a time when our house was full. And he tells about Jesus being born in his stable and how that was a common practice that they let anyone who was unable to pay. If the inn was full, they even let them stay in the stable and they didn't charge them and they cared for them that way. And so Jesus is hearing the, for, the, the recount in the poem about his birth and his parents. And, and the man tells about him staying in the stable and how they loved to have him. And then he left and, and he said, and, and now I'm all alone and that's my reward for housing the Savior of the world. And he begins to tell about Herod's hitmen who come and kill every child to and under. And Jacob had a son named Joseph and Benjamin. And Joseph was three. And he was playing in the street a lot like that little girl was when Jesus came to Bethlehem. And the guard pronounced that every child to and under shall die, throws his spear, pierces this little boy's heart. He stumbles towards his dad and his dad knows he's dying, and he says, let him be the mark. Anyone under him shall die. And then they go and to rip the youngest boy, a, a lap baby, from his mother. He, they're trying to pull him away, and she won't let go. And so they, they kill his wife, and they take his child, and he tries to save his child. They cut his arm off, so he loses his arm, and they kill his son. And there Jesus is hearing this story. And the reason I thought of it as, as uh, Chris was singing is, the burdens that we can take to the cross. You see, you would think that's, a, that's an insurmountable burden, but the picture of the poem is that Jesus weeping, you know, Jacob says, why are you crying? He says, because I am the one who was born in your stable. And, and, and you know, the, the innkeeper makes the statement, I wondered where you were all these years. Whatever happened to you? He said, I'm that boy, and I have come, and in less than two weeks, I will make all things right at the cross and I will give you your sons and your wife back and you will rule and reign because I will be victorious over sin and death at the foot of the cross we have victory over the most burdensome burden 
we can take it and lay it down. I don't know, you may have had someone in your family pass away. Maybe you've had children pass away. Maybe you've been wounded severely. (coughs) Emotionally, spiritually, you've been abused in some way. I don't know where you come from, but Jesus does. And I'm telling you that as John the Baptist said, Behold, the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world. We know He came to make all things right. And so He is here today. And He is saying to you, I have gone to the cross. I have made all things right. Believe. Believe and you shall rule and reign with Me and be victorious in My death. You know, when I think about our Savior and I begin to think in my mind as I read the pages turns to these details of, of stories and, and uh, even begins to wonder. Uh, I, this week was reading in my trip through the Bible this year. I'm in Matthew and I was reading in Matthew and, and uh, they were by the sea and I could, just, I could just feel the wind blowing. You ever been there? Like you can feel the sea breeze as it blows in your hair. And I could taste the salt and I could see the crowd around Christ in my mind's eye. And I, I could see him standing there pushed away from the shore just a little teaching. And the whole point of everything he's doing is he's saying, I am the Son of God. I am going to die. I am going to be raised from the dead. And you can trust me with your life. Lay it down at the cross and I will raise it up to new life. So I don't know about where you are in your journey. You know, you you may have come here saved. You may have come here lost. You may have come here hating Christ and here because someone begged you to be here. I don't know where you are in your journey, but I know where Christ is. He is seated by the Father in heaven and He is pleading, come to the cross. Come to the cross. So uh, I guess we could give an altar call saying just as I am and be done, but uh, it's not that easy for me, I guess. I don't want to make it that easy for you. We've covered 18 verses in our journey through John, and uh, we've covered it in 16 messages. And I know that some of you are probably thinking, you know, <clears throat> if we do this, that'd be right at 47 uh, messages if we get through these 51 verses. Never fear. It picks up from here. The first 18 verses are, are pure theology. They're very difficult. They, they take a lot of unpacking. But then we're entering into, starting in 19, there's a transition in the text. Can you see it? You see the difference? And this is the testimony of John. That'd be like a chapter heading for us in an English book. If you were reading a, a book today, it would be a t- testimony of John. That's a heading. We're headed into what is known as narrative. And John, the gospel writer, is going to tell his first narrative is about John the Baptist and his witness of Jesus Christ. And it's going to cover uh, roughly verses 19 through uh, 34. Okay? Now, we're going, to, we're going to cover a paragraph at a time. I'm going to cover, Bruce read for us, the text for the day, so I'm not going to read it again, 19 through 23 today. I believe we should be able to cover these uh, next uh, passages in about five to six weeks. We'll be done with the first chapter and moving on. So you see, we are going to move at a rapid pace. That's going to require that you 
hook in and pay attention because I, I'll be in 19 and then I'm going to be in 23 and then I'll be back at 20. We're not going to just follow the outline of the text identically. So you can't go to sleep for a little bit, wake up, and I'm still on verse 19. I, I will have left you and you'll be all tangled up in your mind. So I don't want you to do that. Um, I want you to hook in here and see the witness of John, the testimony of John the Baptist. John, the gospel writer, gives a clear witness that, uh, that uh, John the Baptist is not the Messiah. Look at verse 19 and 20. And this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him. Now, I want to pause there just because I'm not going to cover every detail. I want to, though, keep it in your mind. This, is un, this would be unusual. Why aren't the Sadducees present? If you know who the Sadducees are, they're the, they're the ones who uh, are the, the questioning body in a sense. They doubt. They have a lot of doubts in their mind about this fulfillment of prophecy and the literacy, the literal meaning of the Old Testament. And they'd be liberals in our day. They'd be what we know as liberals. The Pharisees, very conservative. Everything the Bible says is going to come true. It's the Word of God, word for word. Sadducees, well, we're not so certain about all of this. And so we're not quite sure why they're not present, but we do know that they were in the ruling body of the Sanhedrin in that day. In other words, the high priest was a Sadducee. And so it would seem that he sent uh, the, the lower level Pharisees and Levites. To, uh, to, to find out who John is. And so here he is. He's uh, sending the priests and the Levites have him question him. Who are you? He confessed and, and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And so we have it. He's not the Christ. Do you ever get... I mean, when Jesus and John the Baptist do this all the time, they just answer the question how they want to answer it. Did anybody say anything about the Christ? They didn't ask him if he was Jesus. They didn't ask him if he was the Messiah, did they? They said, who are you? <laughs> he could have said, I'm John, the son of uh, you know Elizabeth, and I'm the cousin to Jesus, and I'm a weird guy that lives out here in the desert and eats locusts and honey. That's what he could have said. He could have said he was a preacher, a prophet. He could have said anything. Why does he focus in on I'm not the Christ. I believe it's because John, the gospel writer, is pointing out his outline of John's whole ministry in verses 6 through 9. Look at John 1, 6 through 9. We already looked at those texts, and I gave you an outline. I said, this is what John the Baptist does when he comes. He says, I am not the light. Number two, I came to bear witness of the light. Number three, so that all might believe through me. And now we have John... The gospel writer say first message he records in this gospel is John the Baptist saying, I am not the light. You see it? He gave the outline. This is what John's whole ministry is here on this earth. I am not the light. I'm a witness to the light. And you need to believe in the light. And now he starts his first message. And what do you know? Like any good author, he follows his outline. I'm not the light. I believe that John perceived that their question to him was deeper than who are you. I think he knew the Levites, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and indeed the whole nation wanted to know if he was the Messiah. He acted a lot like the Messiah. He looked like the Messiah. He was building a great crowd like the Messiah would bring if he was raising up an army or bringing a nation out of oppression. And so 
there's reason for John to give this answer. He's not just kind of on a tangent. He's answering their deepest question. And I, I see that because uh, they say to him right after that, what then? You, you know, like, okay, well, you answered our question that we were going to get to. You stole it. We were going to ask you who you are. Then we were going to ask you, were you, Jesus, were you the Messiah? And so you took our second question, so we'll move on down the list. You know, you kind of get that feeling when you read the text. So John gives a clear witness that he is not the Messiah. This, is, um, this outline uh, is important because in John's day, indeed in our own day, there are many who claim to be the promised one. In John's day, there were many who ran around claiming to be Christ. Josephus records that there were hundreds in his day who had a false belief that they were the Son of God. I got to think about the arrogance of a person who thinks they're the Son of God. You know, I thought I was a lot of things, but the Son of God is not one of them. You know, that was revealed to me quite early in my life. Like the first time I ever got a whipping, which was pretty early. You know, I wasn't very old. I was toddling about, I'm sure. And so I don't know why people do this other than they are confusing agents. They are dilute down, they dilute the scene so that the Messiah, you know, if there's hundreds of people running around the countryside saying, I'm the Messiah, I'm the Messiah, and then Jesus says, I'm the Messiah, he's easily put in the category with the crazy ones. Well, you know, that's just another one. Here comes another one, just like the others, you know. And so. Possibly it's a ploy of the evil one, the ruler of this world, Satan, who puts, him, put, puts that uh, in people's minds. We know it's true not only from history, but from our own scripture text. Look at Acts uh, chapter 5. There's a recording of, uh, of the, uh, those who believe that they are messiahs. Acts 5 verse 36. And he said, uh, excuse me, for before these days... Uh, talk, this is Gamaliel's speech to the Sanhedrin uh, when the apostles are on trial for preaching about Christ, Jesus Christ. He says, For before these days, the, uh, Theudas rose up claiming to be somebody, claiming to be the Christ. And a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After that, after him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away from the people afar after him. He too perished and all who followed him were scattered. You see, Gamaliel is, is obviously averse with people who believe they are the promised one, the Messiah. And so there were many in their day. So John is being questioned and he's being asked in the deepest sense, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the Jews themselves want to know, John, are you the one we're waiting on? Are you the Messiah? He clearly says, I, I am not the Christ. I am not the Christ. So, it's, it's his first point of his outline of his ministry. I am not the light. Given to us in verse 6. He came as a witness to bear witness of, about the light that all might believe in Him. He was not the light, verse 8. But He came to bear witness of the light. So John is, uh, is following the outline, so to speak. So who does John say that He is? We're going to skip down in the text to verse 23. If He's not the Christ, who is He? Look at verse 23. I am the voice 
of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now that's a quote from Isaiah 40, verses 3 through 5. Listen to that quote, because it's significant. I want to make some point here. A voice cries. Now, John the Baptist said, I am a voice, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. But the text in Isaiah just says, a voice cries. In the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up. Every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level. And the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Look at some interesting things about Isaiah 40, 3 through 5. It says, a voice cries. Can you see a voice? Can you see it? The correct answer would be, no, you can't see it. You can only hear it. This describes best John the Baptist's desire for his ministry. He did not care to be seen. He only wanted to be heard. If we could only have some John the Baptist today, if we could only have some men who were in, had enough integrity and enough humility to say, I don't care if anybody ever sees me. I just hope they hear the truth through me. The text in Isaiah says, a voice cries. And John says, I'm the voice. He doesn't, you know, when he's identifying himself, he doesn't take some great title. It's the simple thing. I'm the one you can't see. I'm a voice crying to you in the wilderness. Notice the other thing, the, the operation of this voice that's crying in the wilderness is to make a highway in the desert. And so if he's making a highway, just think, in Alabama, do we pay much attention to people who are making a highway? No. Evidence of that is a lot of them are hit on the interstate. No, people don't see them. They just run right over them. And their, their statement is, I didn't even see the guy. I was just driving along, and there he was on the interstate. Insignificant. Always overlooked. But we do see their work, don't we? We see what they produce. We, they are unknown, but their, their work is very well known. And John is this guy for us in the text. A voice. I don't care if you ever see me, John says. He says in John 3, verse 30, he must increase and I must decrease. His whole desire was working himself out of a job. His whole desire was hurry and send them aside, but then I'll fade away. He wanted to be in the background. He didn't want to be the foreground. He didn't want to be the answer. He didn't want to be the message. He wanted to just proclaim the message. And then in the wilderness, he's there in the wilderness and he's making rough places and we won't get into all that, but he's smoothing out the way so that the Messiah can come and proclaim his and bring in, usher in his ministry, Jesus. He's doing this. So he's insignificant. He's overlooked. He's a highwayman in a sense, not seen by anyone, unknown by everyone. And yet John gives him a place of prominence in the text. He's the first person in the narrative. He's the first one mentioned besides God and the Word of God. He's the first human besides Christ in the gospel. There's something can be said about that. So uh, he is humbled and yet God 
elevates him. Jesus elevates him as the greatest to ever be born among women. So his whole job, what was his job? His one and only job, what he lived his life to do was to make it clear who the Lord was. He waited for that triumphant moment he could point in the crowd and say, Behold the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world. That's what his whole life was consumed with. He was waiting and yearning on, and, and, and praying for that day. And it, it was given to him, and we're going to get there later on. He made Christ obvious. He made God's glory shine brightly. And he called everyone to believe in Jesus Christ. He called everyone to believe in Him. So John is not the Christ. John is a voice. That's, that's as simple as you can put it. He's a voice crying in the wilderness. And John even denies that he is the great prophet Elijah or the prophet mentioned in Deuteronomy 18. Look at the text in verse 21 where we skipped. We skipped this text. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. So they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And that's where he said, I'm a voice. Crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. So he's not Elijah. Now I want to pause here because Jesus says he was Elijah. So is there contradiction? Jesus says clearly, I tell you, you know, I tell you, if you have faith to believe, John the Baptist is Elijah. That's what he says about him. So what do we have here? Is John lying? Is Jesus lying? Is there contradiction? No, it's back to that humility. We have to understand who is giving him the title and who is being humble and pushing the title away. John didn't claim for himself to be the forerunner of Christ. That was God's responsibility to give him that title. He didn't claim it out of pride. He could have. I think he knew here. He knew here what he came to this earth to do. He knew it by this time, yet he wouldn't, he wouldn't be proud. He wouldn't be boastful. Oh, yeah, I'm the one Malachi was talking about at the end of the Old Testament. Elijah's coming, and I'm him, and you ought to be following me. No, he's a voice, humble, submissive. The point's not about whether I'm Elijah or not. That's what John would say, I believe. The point is, the Messiah is here. He's even here among us. And I'm about to show you who He is, and you need to follow Him. How many preachers do you know that say, well, I'd love for y'all to stay at my church, but uh, there's this better preacher down the road. and I think we all ought to go down there and join his church. That's what John did. So humble a man to say he had all these followers, thousands we believe were in the wilderness listening to him preach on a daily basis and yet when Jesus shows up, he immediately without any qualm says, uh, y'all don't need to follow me anymore, follow him. I must decrease, he must increase. Wow, what a picture for us of how to be a testimony, how to be a witness. I, I, I want to lay the groundwork so I can turn it on you here in just a moment and show you how we fit in this role. But let me finish up the work here. Elijah, he is, by the way, he is, I believe, Elijah. He is the one that Malachi was forecasting would come. But he's being humble. 
He's not claiming that title. He allows Christ to give him the title. And he says, I, he says I'm not the one in Deuteronomy 18, 15. I'm not the prophet that Moses spoke of, but yet we know now in hindsight he was the prophet Moses spoke of. He was the prophet Elijah in the day of Christ. And so uh, we see here that he is taking the focus off of himself. See, if he said, I'm the one, I'm Elijah, he knew the focus would turn to him. That wasn't his desire. The focus needs to stay on Jesus. It needs to stay on the Christ. So he deflects any praise that might come his way. So we have this humble voice crying out, make straight the way of the Lord. And his whole point is, I am not the Christ. And then his second point to them is, I came to tell you about the Christ. And his third point is, please believe in the Christ. All right? I keep driving that home because of this. We, you and I, are impacted as Christians by this example. And I want to show you how. Turn, hold your place here and turn to John 15, verse 6. It's a great joy for any preacher to hear rustling pages. It means people are trying to see the Word of God and not just listen to, trust me, don't. Just trust me. Read it. Start in verse 5. Jesus says, I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he, is, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. Verse 7. If you abide in me and my word abides in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. What a, what a beautiful passage about the testimony of a believer. We have been chosen by God as believers to bear fruit. If your life is not bearing fruit, it is a great time for you to step back and see why is my life not bearing fruit. Because it's clear by Jesus' own words, I am the vine, the one who brings you life, and I will bring my life to you, and you as a branch will bud and put out fruit. It's not maybe you will do it. You will do it. I am the vine, and you are the branches, and my branches bear much fruit. A fruitful life is the sign of a Christian life. And I say John the Baptist had a fruitful life and he had a fruitful witness. So how can I have a fruitful witness? How can I have a life like John? How can I be a voice? How can I be the road worker that nobody notices but they always notice the work I leave behind? How can I be that guy? How can I be the man or woman who passes away and 40, 50, 100 years from now they say, I can't remember that person's name. But there was this person when I was a kid. And they made God's Word come alive when they talked. And their whole aim was to teach us about Jesus. I can think of several people in my own life that I struggle to remember their name, but I don't remember, I don't have any problem remembering what they were all about. Sunday school teachers, 
people who helped me as a kid, people who helped me as a teenager. And I might forget their name, but I never forget what they did because their purpose was not themselves. Their purpose was Christ. They were always pushing Him forward, pushing Him to the forefront. And so how can I have this? I'm saying we have an obligation. Not only was John the Baptist a chosen witness, we are chosen witnesses. You and I. If you are a Christian here today, you don't have an option of witnessing to Christ. It is not a gift. I want to make that clear. Witnessing is not a gift. Evangelism, the leadership of evangelism, is a gift. An evangelist is a gift. But witnessing is not a gift. Witnessing is a command. We are to go to all the people and be a witness. Jesus gives us that command in Matthew 28, 19 through 20. So how can I be a faithful witness? How can I be a voice? How can I be like John in my life? Make it practical for me, okay? You've got to remember that you are not the answer. This is a harder one than you might first think. I can't tell you how many times that I've opened my mouth to speak for the Lord and before I'm done, I realize all I've done is told them some truth about me or about what God has done for me or about what I think would be good for them. And that's a wasted effort. They don't need to know about me. Who do they need to know? Christ. I need to be a voice that cries out to them, Christ. Behold Christ. Look at who He is. Know who He is. I have to decrease so He can increase. I have to come to show you the answer. I have to have a purpose in life. You think John the Baptist just woke up one day and said, I think I'll go out in the wilderness. And these locusts look good to eat and this camel hair looks good and my hair's grown out. So, hey, I'm weird enough as it is. Let's just start preaching. No. John, as a child, started studying the Word, the Old Testament, and was raised in a home to where he went to the temple and he worshipped. And all of these things prepared him for his life purpose, which was to glorify God through every waking moment. He glorified God and made straight. So I draw from that in my life. I have to have purpose when I witness. I have to purpose it in my heart. It doesn't just happen. Very rarely does it just happen. I found that when I don't go every day with an intention of being a witness for Christ today in my actions, in my words, in everything, I I reflect over the day at the end and say, I wasted all those opportunities. Man, there was this person, and in the moment I didn't even recognize it, but then when I'm laying on my bed, I think, you know that waitress, she sure was giving me all these hints about how bad her life was and she needed some answer. And I sat there and said, oh, well, that's so bad. Could you give me some more sweet tea? I'm kind of thirsty. Just totally oblivious to that person that God put there. I don't think John missed those people. I think John fell to the background, didn't worry about himself, and he worried about others around him, and his whole purpose was, behold Christ, behold Christ, behold Christ. And I'm saying to you as a Christian... This is what Christ has saved us for and left us here for so that we might say with our words and our deeds, Behold Christ. Look at Him. Know that He's the answer. 
I want you to believe. We have to go with, I want you to believe in the answer. You know, we're not responsible for their response when we witness of Christ, but we are responsible to give them an opportunity for a response. We're very responsible for that. We are to be about casting the net and drawing it. You know, I I can think of hundreds of cases where I've done everything, shared this presentation, and I know it powerfully impacted them, but but I never said to them, you know, what do you believe about that? Do you believe it? Do you not believe it? You know, we have to go with the intention of I'm not the answer. I've come to show you the answer, Christ. I want you to believe in the answer. I want you to believe in Christ. God is responsible for saving, but we are responsible in His own Word. We are made responsible to spread the seed, to scatter the seed. So, if we are to be an effective witness for Christ, we will need to forget ourselves, forget our likes, forget our dislikes, Forget our needs, forget our personal interests, forget our free time, forget even our work at times so that we might be a witness in this world. I uh, was, uh, as I was studying, came across a great story that I think catches it. It catches it all because I'm not a great example in this area of being a great witness. I just fail so often. I fail so often and find grace every time, but I just want to be a witness. I really do have this great desire to fade away and let him increase in my conversation, in my life. There was an African tribesman who was one to the Lord through a missionary's work, and he had elephantitis, which is a very painful enlargement of parts of the body. Uh, you know, legs, arms, limbs, uh, even your head. It could be your head. But this man's was in his legs. He had legs that were swollen. And if you've ever had swollen anything, you know it's painful. It just hurts. You get to where you can't bend, you know. And if you've had swollen uh, ankles or knees or anything like that, this man was swollen like that 24 hours a day, seven days a week. But he became a Christian. And he shared the gospel. He, he, he witnessed to everyone in his village. And, and he walked from hut to hut to do that in great pain. And he, once he had shared with everybody, he went to the missionary and he said, I'm going to go to the next tribe. The next tribe was about a mile and a half away. And he walked. Every day he would walk and he would share and witness and live with these people and eat with them and talk with them and share Christ with them. And then he got a burden for the next tribe which was 12 and a half miles away. This man was, his legs by the missionary's testimony were about three to four times the size of a normal man's legs. They were swollen just almost like the, the description was you could have poked them with a needle and they would have just popped. They were so swollen, so inflamed. And the missionary told him, don't go. It's dangerous. It's through the jungle. You're swollen. You can't make it. And weeks later, after this burden persisted, his desire to witness, thinking only of them and their need of Christ, he set out early one morning before anyone in the village woke up. He walked there by himself. He shared the gospel until dark, and he walked back in the dark. He arrived back. The missionary at the edge of the tribe meets him at midnight. He was dehydrated. His legs were bleeding. 
He was almost paralyzed, dragging himself along. And his one thing was, I just wanted him to see Jesus. I just wanted him to see Jesus. You know, when I read those stories, now that's not a missionary. He wasn't a missionary or preacher. He was just a tribesman, uneducated. He had no education at all. All he knew was Jesus had changed his life. And he wanted to decrease so that Christ might increase. He had, I would say, the spirit of John the Baptist. My likes and dislikes don't matter. My cares and concerns don't matter. My family doesn't matter. My desires for physical possessions don't matter. If it costs me everything, I'm going to take the message of Christ to the lost world. And I'm going to be a witness. And so the question leaves for me and you is this. Will you follow the path that John the Baptist has made straight? Will you proclaim the name of the Messiah, Jesus Christ, to those you live with and live around and work with, even if it comes at great cost? I can't answer that question for you. But I can't answer it for myself. And what I am committed to and have recommitted myself to because of studying this passage is that I don't waste any time. We have a short life. It's a breath of air and it's gone. And then, so I've decided, reading this, I've been challenged by John the Baptist. Be a witness day in and day out at any cost. Show them Jesus Christ. And so that's my desire. If you came today lost, I pray you've seen him through the song and through the reading of Scripture and through the preaching of God's Word. If you've come today and you were already a Christian, I pray you've been challenged. There is no excuse. There's no excuse for me and for you that we do not bear witness because John 15 clearly tells us if we are in him, he will be in us and we will bear much fruit. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your word. Forgive me for excusing myself from responsibility to my fellow man in this area of witnessing. I thank you for great men like John the Baptist who show us that, that, that our own desires must die so that others might hear of Christ. And Lord, I pray that this church would be set on fire, set on fire in our bones. May we be like that tribesman who cannot rest until that next village hears about Jesus. Lord, I've thought often and prayed for often this week and and am compelled again, Lord, to pray for David Sitton and and, uh, To Every Tribe Ministries. Lord, you know that in about a month and a half, they will go into a very dangerous area of Mexico to share with the people there for the first time the word of, of Christ, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Lord, their life is, is in your hands. And so I ask that you would prepare the way, that they would come into a village that is receptive to the word and that they would be protected from any disease or any danger that might face them there. I thank you for a brother in Christ like David who has such an unbelievable passion to lead others to love the unreached. And Lord, I pray that this church would fall in love with the people of the world who have never heard of your glorious gospel. May we stop our selfish uh, nature. May you stop it so that we might put ourselves aside and live for you. 
It's in your name we pray. Amen. If you have any questions or any comments or anything you'd like to talk with me about, I'm